Compass Media Networks. This is America's First News. This morning with your host, Gordon Deal. Sitting out the election. Good morning, I'm Gordon Deal. Happy New Year. Welcome into Monday, January 1. Here's what we have for you this hour with a likely Biden-Trump rematch, one that many polls show Americans don't want. Which party benefits if voters stay home in protest? Also, the U.S. is missing millions of homes as part of a shortage contributing to higher prices. But what's the exact number? Plus, on the tech front, how much policing does artificial intelligence need from the government? And the new definition of vintage clothing. You know, some of the shirts I'm seeing are shirts that I... uh you know, wore as a kid or had as a kid or saw as a kid. Um, So I I found it very interesting that at just 32, I'm seeing the stuff being branded as vintage and it made me feel incredibly old. Jacob Gallagher, The Wall Street Journal on clothing from the 2000s that's vintage now. Well, former President Trump and President Biden appear to be headed toward a rematch, despite polls showing many voters are not satisfied with the current options for president. Experts said this could create a political environment in which more voters decide to sit out in November than in past elections. Here's Jared Gans, campaign reporter at The Hill. Jared, explain. We've seen for months that polls are showing that a lot of voters, they don't want former President Trump or President Biden to be their nominee both seem likely headed for their party's nominations, but a lot of voters are very frustrated with what's likely going to be the 2024 matchup. So there's some concern uh, the experts voice that the frustration could cause more voters to just want to sit out and not participate in the process. Uh, 2020 was a historically well-participated election. It had one of the highest, uh, highest voter participations in modern history, But a lot of voters, they don't want to see a rematch of 2020, so they could decide they're going to sit out, they're going to look toward a third party to uh, avoid the two main party nominees. Boy. Okay, so what's changed, I guess, uh, from 2020 to now, where there was so much enthusiasm ahead of 2020 versus today? Right, absolutely. It's, oh, it's... A lot has changed, and they say that a week is a long time in politics, so uh, some of the issues that we're talking about now could, of course, change. But uh, it's it's been a while. There's been just a lot of uh, dissatisfaction, a feeling of wanting the parties to really move on from both President Trump and President Biden. I guess uh, as experts weigh in here, I mean, who wins if voters decide in a significant amount to sit out. Right, well, it's unclear. I did speak to one Republican strategist who said he felt that if it ends up being a lower turnout election, that former President Trump would likely be the beneficiary there, that a lot of voters in 2020, they came out because they wanted to vote more so against Trump than in favor of Biden. And he said he feels there's less enthusiasm for President Biden now than there was at this time four years ago. And the, there's no base that is so loyal to a single political candidate that we've seen in modern times like former President Trump. Um, that said, Democrats have expressed optimism that given over the course of the next year, more voters will be aware of the binary choice between President Biden and former President Trump, and they will be willing to come out and vote for President Biden, um, and that the numbers, which have somewhat looked somewhat concerning for President Biden, they will improve over the next year. Hmm. 
We're speaking with Jared Gans, campaign reporter at The Hill. His piece is called Voter Frustration could be key to turnout in 2024 uh as you point out in the story like excitement normally drives turnout um something like abortion is that still going to be a driving force a year from now right it definitely could be we've seen in the aftermath of the supreme court overturning roe v wade there have been about a half dozen states that have held some sort of referendum related to abortion in terms of allowing it more or restricting it more. And all of those elections have really been strong voter turnout, a lot of enthusiasm. And in every single one of them, the side in favor of abortion rights has passed. And this could be a source of hope for Democrats that even if a lot of voters are not pleased with President Biden at the top of the ticket, there are likely going to be other states next year that are going to have referendums on abortion. And that could be another way to get voters to come to the polls and vote in favor of abortion rights. And once they're already there, they Democrats would hope would go down the uh, ticket and vote for President Biden and other Democrats. Wow. So generally speaking, it's it's a incumbent versus newcomer that would draw people to the polls in a presidential election year. Right. So I uh, spoke to a lot of uh, people on Democrats and Republicans and professors of political science, more neutral observers, um, and they all agreed that at the end of the day, President Biden and President Trump are both very well-known figures. It'd be hard-pressed to find someone who doesn't already have an established opinion on both of them. So a lot of what determines 2024, it might not be, am I going to vote for President Trump or am I going to vote for President Biden? It's about, am I going to participate? Thanks, Jared. Jared Gans, campaign reporter at The Hill. Coming up next, America's missing homes. Now your ideas don't have to wait. Now they have everything they need to come to life. Dell Technologies and Intel are creating technology that loves ideas, loves expanding your business, evolving your passions. We push what technology can do so great ideas can happen right now. Find out how to bring your ideas to life at dell.com slash welcome to now. That's dell.com slash welcome to now. Happy New Year, and thanks for spending part of your Monday with us. Economists see decades of chronic undersupply as the underlying problem with today's housing shortage. Any other problems in the market are like speed bumps that cause a momentary slowdown, whereas the constraints on supply are more like an engaged parking brake that's making it harder for the car to get over each successive obstacle. It's a story by Joseph Lawler, policy reporter at the Washington Examiner. Joe, what did you find? Since probably 1980... There have been a group of cities in the U.S. where it's very difficult to build. We all know what those are. That's like San Francisco, Boston, New York, L.A., and and these other coastal cities that are now very expensive and where people struggle to move there and people struggle to afford to stay there. And what that, that has meant is that prices overall in the U.S. have risen. So it's still easy to find a house in, for instance, Toledo or St. Louis, and other places like that, but they're, but those aren't the cities that are creating jobs on a mass scale. And those aren't the cities that people are looking to move to in large numbers. And what that has meant is that prices overall have gone up and that people have been strained to afford to live, um, to pay their housing, to pay for housing costs. And that's why we've seen these indicators go up, like the average cost of a house 
average rents, every indicator of shelter costs has basically gone up. And now it's reaching a point where the Biden administration, members of Congress and others are kind of forced to take uh, to take into account and to worry about it as a political issue. Boy. So if there was such a thing as uh, as a housing genie and she snapped her fingers and had all the homes built by this afternoon that we needed, how many would we need to kind of satisfy demand? Right. That's the great question. So the question is, what kind of demand are you trying to satisfy? If you're trying to get costs down to some standard of affordability, the answer is maybe two to four million. That's the estimate that the White House is working off of. That's the estimate that we've seen from, for instance, Freddie Mac. And that would get prices back to a level where it's like most people are not spending 30% of their income on housing. That's the standard that a lot of people in real estate use to say, look, if you're spending more than 30% of your income on housing, you're spending too much. That's yeah. not a wise budget uh, decision. You might be at risk for financial problems. So that's one answer. But the other answer is, like, why do we want to stop at 30%? Why do we want to get to a level of affordability that wasn't that great to begin with? If we could have more of a free market in housing and allow as many houses to be built as would be profitable for developers, it might be more like 20 million houses. That would be, yeah, but then the problem with that, the counter to that would be, we have a system here in the U.S., which we're all aware of, which is that your house is an investment vehicle as well as a place to live. So in that scenario, which is pretty far-fetched, if we're being honest, if we built, built 20 million additional houses in the U.S., Suddenly, housing wouldn't be such a great investment no, strategy. Right, right. A lot of people's nest eggs, prices would come way down, yeah. and so it would be affordable for people to buy houses. But the flip side of that is like a lot of people's nest eggs would be suddenly way less valuable. So all of our laws, all of our taxes, all of our cultural norms are geared toward protecting homeowners, protecting their investment. So that's not really a realistic scenario, and that's not something we'd want to see the GE do overnight. Right. We're speaking with Joe Lawler, policy editor at the Washington Examiner. His piece is called Home Economics. Is the U.S. missing 2 million houses or 20 million houses? You referenced, too, response to demand and then almost did like a, a comparison of San Francisco and Houston. What would you do there? Yeah, that's a great example, right, where Houston is a, is a city that we've seen explosive growth in. So around 2000, it was around the year 2000, San Francisco and Houston had similar populations. Um, of about 4 million plus. And today, Houston is a city of more than 7 million, and it's one of the biggest cities in the U.S., one of the most dynamic, one of the most affordable. So what has happened there is that as demand for housing in Houston has gone up, Houston's responded by building more housing, and prices have not risen that much. It's still really cheap to live in Houston. San Francisco, by contrast, has not allowed housing. They, it's very difficult to build anything in San Francisco. You need to go run through a series of hurdles. You need to get sign-off from, uh, from the Planning Commission and often the City's Board of Supervisors as well. So the metro San Francisco uh, has only grown by that much since 2000. Uh, and what that's meant is that prices have grown astronomically to the point where the average, the typical house is now like 1.3 million, which is obviously way out of range for 
most people. Thanks, Joe. Joe Lawler, policy reporter at the Washington Examiner. Coming up next, thumbs down to book clubs. If you still have landline phone service, you may have noticed that your monthly bills have been skyrocketing. That's because the FCC no longer regulates copper lines, and phone companies are jacking up the price of their service. UMA, O-O-M-A, is an internet home phone service that lets you keep enjoying the safety and peace of mind of a home phone without paying an arm and a leg. In fact, with a one-time purchase of the UMA Tello, you get internet home phone service for free. All you pay are applicable taxes and fees. Unlike mobile phones, UMA has address-based 911, so dispatchers will know exactly where to find you in an emergency. And in the event 911 is called... UMA can send a text alert to loved ones. UMA even includes a free mobile app so you can take your home number on the go. And don't worry, you can keep your phone number for a one-time fee or get a new one for free. Setting it up is easy. It takes less than 10 minutes. Stop paying too much for home phone service. Visit UMA.com slash Gordon Deal today to get a special discount. That's UMA.com slash Gordon Deal. Thanks for spending part of the holiday with us. What's wrong with today's book clubs? Though traditional book clubs have been a fixture of American social life for decades, some bibliophiles think they have lost the plot. These bookworms don't want to read books that don't interest them. Here's this morning's Jennifer Koshenka. Tired of the rules of traditional reading groups, more people are joining rebel versions. We get the story from Betsy McKay at the Wall Street Journal. Betsy, what are the things about traditional book clubs that people don't like? Well, they've been popular for decades, but what people don't like these days is they don't want to read books that they're not interested in, um, that others choose. Um, They also, you know, a lot of people are afraid to recommend a book to the rest of the group that then everybody else hates. Um, They don't like deadlines. You know, people have enough deadlines in their lives these days that having to finish a certain book at a certain time um, is difficult. And then there are the get-togethers. You've got to bring a, a dish or a dessert or beverages. Um, You have to come with something clever to say. So a lot of people say, you know, there's just a lot of homework and a lot of pressure. Your story talks about a silent book club. What in the world is that? Yeah, I mean, it sounds sounds crazy, right? But it's a, um, or or kind of like a contradiction. Um, It's it's basically um, a a kind of a movement around the country and the world. There are more than 500 chapters of this um, this thing, but the silent book club is um, when people get together in um, at a venue like a brewery or a cafe or um, outdoors or, or anywhere and just read together silently for an hour. Um, you bring your own book, you read at your own pace, but you're sitting and reading with other people. And it's been around for about a decade. Two women in San Francisco started it. But um, it's really taken off this year. Um, they've nearly doubled um, the number of chapters that they that they have. Do they talk to each other? Well, so <laughs> um, you you gather, and for the first half hour, you socialize. If you're at a cafe or brewery or something like that, you can order food and drinks. Then there's an hour of silent reading, um, and then after that. Um, people are invited to stick around for another half hour or forever, however long they want, either to read or to talk with other people or, um, or you know, or they can leave. It's, it's um, you know, it's very, um, uh, it's very different for some people, but they find they really like it just sitting and reading with other people. We're speaking with Betsy McKay from the Wall Street Journal 
if you're just sitting there silently reading, do you feel better being surrounded by people? I mean, you could do that in your own house. Right. You could do that in your own house. You could also do it in the library, right? That's what the library is for. You go and it's quiet and you read. Um, and I asked um, participants at the one silent book club meeting meetup that I went to, and they said, libraries are too quiet, um, as one woman said to me. Or, you know, you really don't get the socializing um, aspect of it. So it's, again, the contradiction is the silent book club, but people like to come because they, they do like the opportunity to sit next to other people and then in the non-reading time, um, socialize with them, see what they're reading. People tell me they get book ideas just from sitting next to somebody or, sitting, you know, across the table from somebody and seeing what they're reading and talking about books. So it's just like book lovers getting together to read silently for a little while. I'm going to make a big assumption and say that most book clubs are made up primarily of women. Are these groups women, and are they young people, old people, or all kinds of things? It's, it seems to be all ages. Um, the one I went to um, was mostly women, but not all women. Um, I talked to other groups that are pretty co-ed. Um, so it's, you know, um, and it's a real mix of ages. Um, I mean... There are people in their 20s, and there are people in their 70s um, who were at uh, the meetup that I went to. So, um, yeah, it's kind of attracting everybody. The group of people are not reading the same book, but do they discuss the books they're reading and perhaps give each other tips on what's good or, or you know, some kind of discussion of books in some fashion? Well, yeah. Um, people who attended told me that's one thing they like about it is during the socializing time, they actually, you know, they meet other people who love to read and they talk about what they're reading. Um, and then at the end, at this meetup, everybody stacks their books up um, on the end of one table and just took a picture for social media so you could see what everybody was reading. So several people told me that they got book ideas to seeing what other people were reading. That's this morning's Jennifer Koshenka with Wall Street Journal reporter Betsy McKay. 30 minutes now after the hour on this morning, America's first news. Now your ideas don't have to wait. Now they have everything they need to come to life. Dell Technologies and Intel are creating technology that loves ideas, loves expanding your business, evolving your passions. We push what technology can do so great ideas can happen right now. Find out how to bring your ideas to life at dell.com slash welcome to now. That's dell.com slash welcome to now. Happy New Year. Thanks for spending part of your Monday with us. I'm Gordon Deal. Coming up this half hour, policing artificial intelligence. Also, a look at our biggest financial regrets of the year and defining vintage clothing these days. We'll have that story in about 15 minutes. Well, is the government needed to regulate artificial intelligence? Tech analyst Rob Enderly of the Enderly Group is here to break down the newest executive order from President Biden. Rob, your take on this. I mean, initially, I, I, I thought that the government was probably going to muck this up uh, the, the, uh, because at this particular point, the administration really doesn't know much about, well, I should say administration, Congress, government in general doesn't know much about cutting edge, edge technologies. And this is a cutting edge technology. However, after looking at the, the order, um, it looks like it focuses on the right things, um, making sure that the AI is, is ethical, uh, trying to keep 
uh, people from doing bad stuff with artificial intelligence and um, and requesting that people do red teaming, which is where they they attempt to break the AI uh, and see what damage can be caused by that breakage. The, the only part that I, I thought was light was that red teaming. And that's only because companies often, when they're rushing a product to market or in competition, will decline to do rigorous testing in order to get the, the product out quickly. And, uh, and having some oversight to assure the quality of the offering I would be wise to hold that off. But it's, it's kind of what the industry has been asking for, the, because otherwise everybody would be running flat out uh, not taking too much uh, care with regard to safety, and we could be looking at a Terminator future. So the so the uh, legitimately Terminator future. So the so the uh, so this should get people to consider what they're doing a bit more. I just think they're going to eventually going to have to increase the enforcement because companies often don't behave well when they've got to make a choice between doing what's right and making money. Okay. So uh, you're a believer here that in this case the government should be regulating AI in some way. Yeah, it, 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 well, for anything like this, there needs to be oversight just to assure safety. It's like you know when you're mucking around with nuclear power, there needs to be oversight. Everything from how you're disposing of the nuclear waste to where you're doing your testing and how you're doing it, because an oops could take out part of a good part of a city. Um, AI is potentially far more dangerous than nuclear energy is, and the, and so making sure that people are treating it respectfully and taking into consideration uh, safety and security. Uh, are all incredibly important to the approach. We're speaking with Rob Enderly, founder and principal analyst at the Enderly Group. We're talking about President Biden's executive order regarding artificial intelligence. Uh, what about concrete laws here, maybe from Congress? Is something like that needed? Yeah, you can only do so much with an executive order. Um, eventually, you, you, need to, uh, you, you need to have Congress step up and actually put some laws in place that can be enforced and so that enforcement agencies can come through here and assure compliance. Uh, that's what government is expected to do, and and, um, and executive orders just don't have the breadth to be able to accomplish all that needs to be done. Plus, they can easily be turned over, uh, turned turned around by a, a sub subsequent administration who is more interested in making money than than safety. So, putting the laws down uh, would would provide a much stronger long term solution to this potential problem. Okay, legit concerns here would be what if there were no regulation well you get you get an ai that that was doing bad stuff uh, the the uh, like what uh, well bad stuff would start on the easy side uh, just being designed to fool people and get them to do things they didn't want to do uh, overturn an election over uh, change the election outcomes um, get people to buy stuff that is in their best interest drive ponzi schemes that's on the light side on the on the heavy side we're, we're hooking these things up to weapon systems we're hooking them up to infrastructure uh, we're hooking them up to large-scale manufacturing, and, and if any of those AIs go nuts and start causing damage, well, you could be talking about a lot of damage. You're talking about um, um, you know gas plants going up, uh, weapon systems firing on friendly uh, soldiers, or just firing when they're not supposed to, um, and things along those lines, which could be far more disastrous. So, so these are con control structures. You want them to do what you want them to do. You don't want them to go off the rails and, and start doing damage. And when you're talking about infrastructure, you know, we had a short call, uh, a, a close call in Florida just a while back where somebody hacked in and, and started changing the mix for chlorine uh, and could have killed you know hundreds of thousands of, of, of Florida citizens. And that's something an AI could easily do. Uh, that got caught, 
but the uh, but that's along the lines of what a misprogrammed AI or a hostile AI could do is um, is just change the mix yeah. in something and, and result in anything from drugs that you know kill you, or or conversely don't do what they're supposed to do to you know controlling water quality, air quality, um, power, um, uh, traffic. And, you know, imagine what would happen if suddenly all the lights, all the stoplights turned green. It, just little things like that could do an awful lot of damage and kill, kill an awful lot of people. Thanks, Rob. Rob Enderly, founder and principal analyst at The Enderly Group. Coming up next, our biggest financial regrets. For all the ones who get it done, Granger is always there to help. Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, 24-7 support, free access to product specialists, and experienced staff at over 250 local branches. Plus, they provide real-time product availability online and have sourcing specialists who can help you track down hard-to-find items. And their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call 1-800-GRANGER, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Happy New Year. Thanks for joining us. As we approach a brand new year, it's a great time for consumers to start thinking about their financial goals for 2024. In addition, many would like to have fewer regrets than we did in 2023. Here's Elizabeth Renter, data analyst at NerdWallet. Elizabeth, what did you find? Yeah, Gordon. So we found that two-thirds of Americans say they have financial regrets for 2023. That's that's a lot. But, you know, the silver lining is that 75% of those people say they're going to use these regrets to motivate their 2024 money goals. Okay. So some of the biggest ones are what? Is it usual stuff? Yeah, pretty typical stuff. So the top-sided regret is not saving enough money. 23% of Americans regret not saving enough for their financial goals and 21% not saving enough for emergencies. And, you know, in 2023, it was harder for people to set money aside than the two years prior. We had government stimulus checks. Uh, People were spending less on travel as the pandemic was winding down. And so 2023 was really a period of adjustment. So based on what you said then, are we able to compare 2023 to other years to see if maybe inflation's having a role or the pandemic had something to do with our attitudes here? Yeah, absolutely. So in 2020 and 2021, we can look at the personal savings rate. This measures the percentage of disposable income that people are able to set aside. And that reached all-time highs during those years when we were receiving those COVID stimulus payments, for example. Um, In 2023, however, those savings were spent down and the personal savings rate actually settled below historic averages on on average, making it more difficult. Wow. All right. So I mean, what do we do then, say, for 2024, Elizabeth, if we're trying to not repeat the regrets of 2023? Well, Gordon, we really expect interest rates to remain high throughout 2024 and inflation to come down. Um, What this means is you won't necessarily be adjusting to rapidly rising prices or uh, swiftly changing scenarios the way that you did over the past few years, but those household savings rates will also remain lower. So it may take more strategic budgeting and spending to approach your money goals in 2024. We're speaking with Elizabeth Renter, data analyst at NerdWallet. We're talking about financial regrets from 2023 and maybe not repeating them in 2024. Um, budgeting. Do When we decide, hey, this is going to be our family's approach, how do we do it? We do it weekly, monthly? What's the recommendation here? You know, Gordon, I would really recommend people think about what's sustainable for them, okay? Because some of us really love to get out all the spreadsheets, track every category of spending. And for other people, that is not only unrealistic, but extremely daunting. Um, We did find in this survey that 22% of Americans regret 
overspending on entertainment. And one thing that can be really useful to people who find this overall budget to be um, cumbersome is to look at the areas they specifically need help on. So if overspending on entertainment is a problem, maybe you come up with a weekly restaurant allowance or a weekly entertainment budget. So you focus the budget on the things that really need your attention. And in that way, it makes it more manageable um, to manage a budget from month to month. How can we be better savers? You know, one of the things that I would say is that 21% of people regret not saving for emergencies specifically. And this is a really important place to drill down when we're talking about savings. Having an emergency fund can insulate you from emergency expenses like hospital bills, for example, or even auto repairs. Um, however, experts suggest you have several months of living expenses set aside an emergency fund, and that can be a big ask for people who are starting from zero. So again, I would point back to think about what's sustainable for you. If you're starting from zero on an emergency fund, maybe it's setting aside $50 a month until the end of the year or a couple hundred dollars a year. However, if you already have a few thousand set aside, maybe you seek to get that one month of living expenses in an emergency fund. So I would really recommend people first focus on the emergency fund and then branch out to, you know, savings towards financial goals like a down payment or those bigger picture things. Thanks, Elizabeth. Elizabeth Renter, data analyst at NerdWallet. Coming up next, what's new in vintage clothes? Hey, glad you could be with us. Welcome into 2024. 40 may be the new 30, but that 20-year-old shirt is still considered vintage. Should it be? A men's fashion update from Jacob Gallagher at the Wall Street Journal. Jacob, what have you noticed? Yeah, this is actually something that I've been looking at and kind of thinking and mulling over for quite some time now, which is, you know, in the vintage world, there's been this kind of push in a lot of ways. A lot of what's being sold, a lot of the attention is falling on T-shirts in particular from the 2000s and even into the late 2000s in some cases. People are really stretching that term vintage quite a lot. Um, and obviously the piece I'm I'm in my 30s um, I, I you know some of the shirts I'm seeing are shirts that I uh, you know wore as a kid or had as a kid or saw as a kid yeah. um, so I, I found it very interesting that at just 32 I'm seeing the stuff being branded as vintage and it made me feel incredibly old and so the story really began with this question of well what is vintage how do we yeah. delineate vintage how do we say what vintage is so I spoke with a lot of dealers about what the vintage demarcating line is. And what I discovered was that 20 years is kind of this hard and fast benchmark. That is what vintage dealers have used for a very long time. They have always said if something's 20 years or older, then it's okay to call it vintage. Um, but within that, you know, I think that there is a few things at play here, which is that our cultural landscape broadly is shifting a little bit and it didn't I didn't explicitly get into this in the story but because a lot of these things are t-shirts so they explicitly have a movie property or a band or something like that on them mm -hmm. you're able to look mm -hmm. at it and say oh I remember that and that doesn't feel that long ago okay you know Green Day or the Spider-Man movie or even the Rolling Stones they're they're tour from the 2000s these things feel more recent to us and yet here they are being labeled vintage and then the other component within that is that, you know, in 1994, which is longer than 20 years ago, but it took some time for all the implications of it to kind of fall into place. In 1994, NAFTA was passed. 
and that really expanded that that really exploded actually the the global apparel manufacturing industry and what happened there was that clothes that were made overseas they started being of a lesser quality than those that had previously been made in America. And a lot of clothing companies started cutting a lot of corners using synthetic fabrics, using cheaper production. And so that really has muddied, if you will, the vintage market where vintage once kind of meant better made, hardier, more durable things. Now it really is not synonymous with that anymore. We're speaking with Jacob Gallagher, men's fashion columnist at the Wall Street Journal. His piece is called Clothes from the 2000s are vintage now for some shoppers. That's scary. What about the role even like of influencers today? I mean, we didn't have that 20 years ago. Yeah, you know, it, it was interesting because I think that in the past you know, 10 years or so, let's say, to kind of spell it out, you know, the vintage world has really taken pains to say, hey, we're vintage. This is better than thrifted. You know, thrifted meant you could find it for two cents, two dollars at your local Goodwill, and that flannel might be fine. The vintage world as these kind of vintage boutiques that have existed, they're saying clothes are better, clothes are hardier. You know, these Levi's from the 1970s are worth $300 because they have this kind of selvage line and this stitching and da-da-da-da. And so the pitch for vintage used to be, hey, it's, you know, hardier and it's more durable. But now the appeal of vintage is tethered a lot to, hey, celebrities are wearing this. You know, Justin Bieber is wearing this old Metallica t-shirt. Haley Bieber is wearing these, you know, very old Levi's jeans that, that, you know, actually might not even be that old. They might be from the 90s. They might be, you know, a a post-NAFTA item. And the appeal of that stuff falls into, hey, it looks cool on this person that I admire. And it doesn't fall into, hey, I'm buying this because of the craftsmanship and because it it's made with this level of care and what have you. And so we've kind of seen this vintage world that was once insulated from trend really fall into being a victim, if you will, wow. of trend. Thanks, Jacob. Jacob Gallagher, men's fashion columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Coming up next, attitudes about New Year resolutions. Well, a new survey from Forbes Health of 1,000 adults looks at Americans' attitudes surrounding resolution setting and what types of goals were prioritized. The most commonly selected New Year's resolution for 2024 among respondents was fitness, which contrasts with findings from the previous year. The previous Forbes Health One Poll survey in 2022 showed that many people were prioritizing their mental health rather than their physical health in their resolutions for 2023. Overall, 48% of people, nearly half, say improving fitness is a top priority this year, while 36% cite improved mental health. 55% say physical and mental health are of equal importance. More people cite improved fitness as a top resolution compared to improved finances, improved mental health, weight loss, and improved diet. Women and men equally cite improved mental health as one of the top resolutions for 2024. Less popular resolutions include traveling more, meditating regularly, drinking less alcohol, and performing better at work. That'll do it for this hour. I'm Gordon Deal. Thanks for listening to This Morning, America's First News.